Good morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 25? We want to uh, hear some advice from dear Abby this morning. Not uh, Abigail Van Buren, but uh, Abigail Ishan Nabal. Agatha Christie once said, uh, most men will be as wicked as their women will permit them to be. And uh, we're going to see a case, uh, case in point this morning. I want to begin reading uh, verse 1 of chapter 25, which gives us the setting to our uh, study. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. Uh, Samuel, Israel's great prophet and spiritual leader, died, and they buried him in the courtyard of his house in Ramah, a little town just to the north of Gibeon, which was the uh, center of political life in Israel at, at that uh, time. Uh, gone, we say, but not forgotten. Even today, if you visit that particular site, they will point to Ramah, and uh, both Arabs and Jews refer to it as Nevi Samuel, that is the uh, the prophet Samuel. Uh, he was gone, but he had made his uh, mark uh, on on Israel. Samuel was David's last hope for reconciliation with Saul. With Samuel's death, uh, David fled southward into the desert of Paran. Some of your uh, translations say Ma'on, but uh, Paran is probably the location of his flight into that region through which uh, Israel had traveled during the, uh, during the Exodus, an area just to the south of Judah between uh, the southern boundaries of Judah and the Sinai Peninsula. And there were large, large herds and uh, flocks that were uh, kept by uh, Judean herdsmen in that, uh, in that area. There, David was somewhat safe from Saul's insane rage, his pursuit. And there, uh, David and his, uh, his men provided protection <coughs> for the Jude- Judean uh, herdsmen that lived in that uh, area, protection from the tribes, the uh, desert tribes that uh, dwelt to the, uh, to the south. And uh, we're told that there was a certain man in that uh, region, verse 2, who had property there at Carmel. This is not the Carmel that we're most familiar with, located on the Mediterranean near the city of Haifa, but another location down uh, south, just to the north of the city of Ma'on, where uh, this man Nabal lived. He had property there. He was very, very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. Uh, She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. Uh, Nabal was uh, mismatched with uh, with his mate. She's described here as a beautiful woman, beautiful of form and face. And her beauty was more than skin deep. She was also an intelligent woman. It's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament for someone who's uh, very resourceful, someone who's wise, uh, insightful, perceptive about life. It's often used of uh, David. Uh, it's even used to describe some of his uh, psalms that were teaching uh, psalms. 
So uh, she was uh, a woman of, of great insight. As we look further into the story, you'll see she was a woman of the Word. She had immersed her uh, heart and soul in the Scriptures. The uh, Pentateuch was in circulation at that time. She well knew the Word of God, and that's what uh, made her wise. Uh, Nabal, uh, her husband, on the other hand, is described here as a as a churlish intractable man, surly and mean in all of his dealings. The word uh, that's translated surly here has the idea of being hard, cruel, uh, harsh, severe. This was a difficult marriage, hard marriage. Uh, there's hardly any unhappiness like the unhappiness of a, of a difficult marriage. And this woman was locked into a relationship with this, uh, with this very difficult uh, person. Abigail's name means joy of my father, and I uh, suspect that she had a very happy uh, home life. But she moved from a happy childhood into a very difficult uh, marriage. Nabal's name in Hebrew means fool. Uh, It's doubtful that any parent would actually saddle a kid with a name like that, unless it's the man who named his son Sue. most likely, this is a nickname, uh, probably tongue-in-cheek corrupt, uh, corruption of his uh, of his actual name, given after the fact by people who knew him well and knew his uh, character. As Ab- Abigail herself said later, as she was describing his character uh, to David, he's well named. Fool is his name, and fool is his game. That's uh, that's the way he plays the game. He's foolish in all of his. Uh, all of his dealings. Uh, the Hebrew language knows uh, five different kinds of fools uh, in ascending order or descending order, depending on how you look at it. Uh, the first fool is called a petty in Hebrew. Uh, the word comes from a root that means to be open. It means naive. Uh, it's the uh, King James uh, simpleton or simple person. Uh, this is the young man that uh, reads Playboy magazine and thinks he knows all about sex. It's this kind of this kind of person. This is the way we come into the world, open and and untutored. Uh, this is the natural born fool. This is the way we are in in the beginnings. And if we're not instructed, we will gravitate to a greater folly. The next word for fool uh, is the word casil that comes from a root that means to be dull. This is the dullard. Uh, the person who's indifferent to uh, wisdom and sensitive to it, disinterested in learning about it. And if this person is not taught, if he doesn't begin to receive instruction, he moves on to the next level of, of tomfoolery, which the Bible describes as the leets. And here the word means uh, the scoffer, someone who is scornful. This is the university uh, professor who looks down on wisdom, on God's wisdom, and those that uh, subscribe uh, to it. And then finally, there is the Nabal, who is the composite of all other fools. He's the fool to end all fools. He incorporates all of these these characteristics. This is the one of whom uh, the psalmist speaks in Psalm 53.1. The fool, that's the Hebrew word Nabal, the fool is said in his heart, uh, there there is no God. Uh, they are corrupt, and their ways are are vile. Uh, Abigail's Nabal was this uh, ultimate uh, 
fool. Isaiah describes uh, this final fool this way. The Nabal speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. Leads people astray. Uh, The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. Now, that little word study, I think, is essential because we need to understand uh, where Naval was coming from. This is not just an untutored man, a man who is insensitive to truth or a bit indifferent to it. This was a man who was committed to folly. His heart had long ago turned away from God, and he was, uh, he was brutish, churlish, mean-spirited, honry. He was an angry man, a difficult, extremely, exceedingly difficult uh, to live with. He's the ultimate fool. Uh, Socrates divided the world into two kinds of people, the, the wise who know that they're fools and the fools who think they're wise. Uh, it's wise to know what kind of fools we are, I suppose. Uh, one thing more that struck me as interesting about this description of, of Nabal, he's called a Calebite. Calebite. It's possible that this could be a reference to the fact that he descended or was of the tribe of Caleb, that uh, wonderful old warrior that wanted the heights, that went to war against the Anakim in his, in his dotage, settled Mount uh, Hebron. That's a possibility. But I'm more inclined to think that the, that the uh, historian had something else in mind. Uh, the word Caleb actually means dog. And I think this is a reference, again, to Nabal's character. It's kind of churlish, uh, dog-like, uh, lip-curling, sneering, contemptuous... Uh, Nature. Dogs in the ancient world weren't pets. You know, they, they weren't man's best friend. They were like jackals, mean spirited predators that ran in, in packs and defiled everything that they, uh, that they came across. And I think uh, this is an apt description of Nabal, a cynical, sneering approach to everything that's good and, and true and, and, uh, and beautiful. Now, incidentally, our word cynic uh, comes from the uh, Latin word cynicus. That means dog. So uh, there's, a, there's a parallel there even in, in English. Uh, we're told that Nabal's residence is, is in the city of Maon, way uh, to the south, a little bit to the uh, west of what's called the Negev, that uh, semi-arid region around the, just to the south of the Dead Sea. But his business was in Carmel, and there he went to uh, shear his sheep. This was a Special occasion, sheep shearing was a festival time, much like uh, our old harvest festivals. I can recall the ones that we had as I was growing up where people would gather from far and wide and we'd just gather everyone in and we'd all uh, eat together. And uh, this was the joy of this particular occasion. It was in the spirit of that occurrence that David sent 10 of his men to ask help from Nabal. They were running out of food and water. Uh, they were still in flight from Saul. It was a very difficult time for them. Uh, they were unable to forage or, or hunt for food, and they were dependent upon their uh, their tribesmen to help them out. This was a natural occasion to appeal to help uh, for help because uh, festive occasions like this were opportunities to gather in those that were less uh, fortunate and and uh, feed them. And so David sent ten of his men to Nabal. Uh, with this message. He says, say to him, long life to you. That's the Hebrew lachai that we often uh, hear exchanged between Jews even today. The lachai, the life. 
good health to you and in your household and good health to all that's yours. Uh, peace, he says. Now here at sheep shearing time, when your shepherds were with us, we did not ill treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Uh, later, Nabal's herdsman will say, not one single animal was ever taken by any of, of David's uh, men. Ask your, your servants. And they'll tell you, therefore be favorable toward my young men since we have come at a festive time. Please give your servants uh, and your son David whatever you can find uh, for him. It's only right that David would make this request. As I said, it's a festive time, but uh, David had also been a wall, as, as he's described, between Nabal's herdsmen and the, uh, the raiders, the desert raiders from, from the south. And uh, when David's men gave Nabal this uh, message, they, uh, they were kept waiting outside his house. They waited and they waited and, and they waited. It's one of the ways that unscrupulous people will empower themselves, intimidate others, is to deliberately keep people uh, waiting to show who's in a position of power. And this is what Nabal uh, did. shows, again, something of his, uh, of his heart. Finally, Nabal uh, came out to David's men and and this is his response, verse 10. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? As I've said before, this is a, a derisive term. When you fail to use someone's name and refer to them indirectly in the same, same way. You're scornful, contemptuous of David. Who, who is this thug, uh, this thief out there in the, uh, in the wilderness, running from, uh, from the law? Uh, Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men who, who are coming from who knows where? Terrible uh, thing to do to David and his men. And they returned and reported this uh, affront to David. Uh, David's request was denied in the most insulting, uh, contemptuous way possible. Saul knew exactly who David was. David was speaking as his son. He wanted to be adopted, taken in to Nabal's family, given help in this way, and Nabal rejects him. Who is this David? You're knowing full well who he was. The problem, again, is, was with Nabal. He had no desire to augment God's plan to bring salvation to the world. The godly in Israel knew that David had been anointed by Saul and that he was the next king and that he was the instrument through which God would bring redemption to the nation. He was, as you know, in the line of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And Nabal knew that. He knew that he was in the, the appointed line. And he, uh, he scorned him because he had no use for God and no use for God's uh, salvation. And when, when the affront was reported to David, he reacted with predictable passion. He, we know what David was like. He was a very violent man in his, in his nature. Tough, tough man. Uh, prone to give way to his violence uh, at times. Been raised uh, that way. Had a hard childhood. Had, had learned early to look out for himself because no one else would look out for him. And uh, he says to his men, verse 13, strap on your swords. Go get your guns. And uh, you can hear the clatter. You know, as 400 men run to get their sidearms. Uh, Testosterone takes over here. Uh, so they put on their swords, and David straps his on, and about 400 men uh, went up 
with David, while 200 stayed with the, with the supplies. Get your swords, David shouts. Take this oaf out. But, you see, David himself was playing the fool on this occasion. It's interesting to contrast this set of circumstances with what had just preceded when he was in the cave of Adullam and he, and, he, and he restrained himself from touching the Lord's anointed. He would not take matters in his own hands. But on this occasion, you see, he'd forgotten. His fury had caused him to forget what he knew was, uh, was true. Remember, David wrote about the need for restraint. He wrote psalms about the fact that uh, we have to let God set things right, that we cannot avenge ourselves. But all of this was forgotten in the moment. David was outraged, furious that this man would treat uh, him uh, and his men. You know, this was not justice that compelled him. It was personal pique. No one can treat me this way, he's saying. Doesn't he know who I am? And uh, he grabs his sword and he goes over, goes out to teach this old fool a lesson. Uh, Jesus... Uh, said that that attitude, bitter hatred, is tantamount to to murder. Uh, He said, you've heard that it was said long ago, don't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. It's a matter of the heart. We don't set out to deliberately kill people, but we do say to ourselves, you know, I'd like to murder that person. We're so angry, so frustrated with what's happening to us. And Jesus said it's a matter of the heart. See, it's the same thing as actually taking a life. And furthermore, it can even lead to taking a life. As, as we're told, most murders are not deliberate acts of violence. They are crimes of passion that happen at the moment because we've lost, uh, lost control. So uh, the Lord is uh, trying to protect us in this um, statement from the Sermon on, on the Mount. Rage uh, can lead to... Uh, to worse things than mere hatred. So Abigail uh, comes to the rescue. Uh, God steps in and in the person of this uh, wonderful woman uh, averts uh, this uh, massacre. Uh, some of Nabal's uh, men come to Abigail, verse uh, 24. And they tell her, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings and he hurled insults at them and so on. She, she, they described to her what had happened when David's ten men came to uh, ask for help. And they say to her, think it over. See what you can do. Do something. Because disaster is hanging over our households. The sword of Damocles is going to fall on us any, any moment. Nabal is such a wicked man, no one can talk to him. They had apparently tried to appeal to him and he, and he, and he wouldn't listen. This was a stubborn, intractable, unyielding. Hard-headed, hard-hearted man, harsh. Uh, he would not uh, would not respond. So Abigail, uh, she's a very smart lady. She uh, loses no time, sets out to intercept David, puts together a large number of uh, provisions. Uh, they're described in in verse eighteen: two hundred loaves of bread, two skins that is skin bottles of wine, fine dressed sheep, five dressed sheep. Five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, loads them on. This is a sumptuous cornucopian meal that she's going to provide for David's men. And it gives us some idea of how lavish this festival feast was because Nabal didn't even miss this amount of food. And she loads all this food on the donkeys 
And again, in her wisdom, she sends the donkeys down the trail first so that David will see that before, uh, before he sees her. Abigail told her servants, verse, I don't know what verse, I can't see the verse, but she says to her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, and as she came riding her donkey into a, a mountain ravine, there were David and his men. The word translated here, mountain ravine, literally means the hidden place of the mountain, the covert of the mountain. And I think what happened is that she was making her way down this narrow ravine, and both David and Abigail were hidden from view until the last moment. And David is making way his way up the ravine, fuming and raging and muttering under his breath. He says in verse 21, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. Remember what he said to Saul? Out of the wicked comes wickedness. And David would not treat Saul in a way that was wicked. He knew that he had to respond to Saul's evil with good. Here he's he's not doing that. Nabal uh, treats him in an evil way. And David is responding with a greater uh, evil. And he's muttering to himself. And he's talking to his men. And they're psyching themselves up for this uh, this massacre. Justifying what they're doing talking about how they have been treated. And all of a sudden, Abigail and David meet. And she falls on her face at his feet. And she utters some of the purest counsel that anyone was ever given. Now I want to read uh, in, an, in its entirety the section from 24 to 31. And then I want to make a few observations about it. We can learn from uh, Dear Abby. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say to you. Please listen to me, she says. She doesn't demand. She doesn't fly into a tirade. She doesn't give way, give way to emotions. She's remarkably composed given the fact that her life is on the line. And she just says, please listen to me. Listen to what I have to say. David was in no frame of mind to listen to anyone. And my Lord, pay no attention to that that wicked man. She uses an interesting idiom. It's uh, uh, literally the son of Belial. Worthless man is the word. Man with no socially redeeming virtues. There's nothing good about this man. Nothing left. Nothing to save. He's just like his name. She said, his name is fool, and folly goes with him. This is a man that's rejected, utterly rejected the truth of, of God. His foolishness followed him every, everywhere he went. But as for me, your servant, I did not see them in my master's sent. You know, I'm not culpable. I'm not responsible. I didn't know. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, May your enemies and all who, who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. May they be fools like Nabal with the self-destruction that's built into that, uh, to that frame of mind. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please 
forgive your servant's offense for intruding. She's very sensitive to where David is at this point. Forgive me for intruding, she says. Forgive me for barging in. It's none of my business, really, but I, I, I want you to listen to what I, what I have to say. Someone once said to me, unsolicited advice is criticism. Unsolicited advice is criticism, and, and there's there's some wisdom in that. That's the way we take it. You know, it sounds like like criticism, but here here's a, a woman who is able to disarm a man, even though she's giving advice that's unsolicited. She'd had years of knowing how to how to handle an angry man. She'd lived with one for years. She'd learned the lessons of faith, so she understood how to how to approach him. Um. Let's see, did I read that last line? Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master. Literally, a sure house. She knew that David was anointed as the next king of Israel and that his house would endure forever. And there was a promise that was later uh, given to David. She understood the significance of his line, that this was the line through which the Savior would, would come. And she uh, reminds him that the Lord is the one who will make that house sure, that dynasty lasting. Because my master, that is David, fights the Lord's battles. It's not your battle, she says. This is the Lord's battle. You just have to be aligned with him. But he's the one who engages in the struggle. Let no wrongdoing be done in you. Don't. Take matters in your own hands. Don't try to protect yourself. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't manipulate and, and hurt in order to gain your own advantage. Uh, let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. That's a phrase that occurs on Jewish tombstones. Uh, it still does from time to time. You'll, you'll see that phrase, a beautiful picture of one's life being bound together with the life of God, a life that is as, as eternal as God's life is. Do you understand what she's saying? David, you're immortal until God's work is done. No one can touch you. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to protect yourself. You don't need to scheme and connive and try to get things your way so you can ascend to the throne. Your life is bound with God's life. And even if people try to kill you, they can't touch you any more than they can touch the life of God. But on the other hand, he says, Nabal's uh, life, he, he says, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. It's a, a colorful metaphor of, Slinging a stone out of the pocket of, of, a, of a sling. In contrast to being bound inexorably to the life of, of God. And when you are bound to the life of God, how can you not live forever? As C.S. Lewis says. So he's, no one can touch you, David. No one can harm you. God is your protector. Let him, let him defend you. And when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, 
Please remember your servant. If she did not want David to ascend the throne by his own machinations and then have to look back with deep regret over what he had done. She didn't want him to have a guilty conscience. He'd look back and see how he made things happen so that he could sit on, on the throne. It's wonderful, wonderful advice. I just want to make two comments. One about Abigail's manner and then some further thoughts about her, her message. First thing to note is, is the spirit with which she approached him. There's an enormous amount of sensitivity and humility here. She acknowledges that she's intrusive, could be construed as intrusive, that she's moving into a, a, a basically a stranger's life in a very bold, frontal way. And she acknowledges that he could take offense at this. Please forgive your servant. She says, she says on at least two occasions, sorry about this, but you know, I have to, have to speak, speak the truth. And what she has to say, she says with, with meekness. Uh, it's a good word. It's a word that's also translated gentle throughout the New Testament. It's a word that's found in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. For theirs is the kingdom of... Uh, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, she's non-defensive. She shows mercy. She's tender. She's thoughtful. She's sensitive. As Paul uh, puts it, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. She isn't harsh. She isn't hard. Using the analogy of the Lord washing the uh, disciples' feet, she didn't plunge his feet into scalding hot water or ice cold water. She washed his feet with, uh, with kindness. The other thing I note is the tranquil spirit. Humility and tranquility are the two characteristics that... that uh, are written all, all across her, her, her demeanor. Uh, she's peaceful because she knows who's in, who's in control. Uh, Peter ties these two ideas together in his epistle when he, he says that uh, women who have uh, difficult husbands should have a gentle, that's, that's the word for meek, and quiet, that is, tranquil spirit. doesn't mean that they don't speak up. It just The word is the word for tranquility. A gentle and tranquil spirit, which Peter says in God's sight is very precious. It's also very precious in the sight of men, I might add. It's difficult. can be done, but it's difficult to resist counsel when it's given with that spirit. Kindness, sensitivity, gentility, compassion, and uh, I mean, no one likes to face a tirade, but a tranquil person has a tremendous impact. Now, I want to point out that those two characteristics, tranquility and uh, uh, meekness, are not just female traits. We're, we're inclined to assign those attributes to women as though they're the ones that have to carry the, the burden of responsibility for being tranquil and quiet in the world, and men can be... Uh, can be in a rage half the time. That's not what, what Peter is saying. Those two terms, meekness and tranquility, occur elsewhere in the New Testament and are applied to men. We need to have the same spirit. Uh, again, uh, the, the beatitude, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, applies to both men and women. It's a godly trait. Same is true of tranquility. Quiet, uh, it's not a word for being absolutely silent, it has to do with the heart, peaceful quiet, tranquil heart. It comes from knowing who's minding the store. It comes from knowing who's in control, from knowing that uh, God is sovereign and that nothing is outside of his uh, control.
um, a gentle answer. The wise man says, turns away uh, wrath. Now that's her manner, which I think opened uh, David's heart. And her message is basically twofold. The first is forget Nabal. Let him go. That's the the common counsel that the Old Testament uh, gives on people that are entrenched in their their evil. Appeal to them. Speak to them about uh, their character. Do it gently. Do it lovingly. Do it friendly. But if they won't listen, and if they won't listen to two or three, and if they won't listen to uh, others in the assembly that uh, care about them and respond, let them go. Let them go. Uh, because the seeds of their destruction uh, have already been uh, been sown. Chronically prideful, arrogant people are impossible to reason with. Uh, proverb, one of the proverbs says, "Though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding him like grain with a pestle, you will not remove his folly from him." Another proverb says, "Don't speak to a fool." I'm not talking about the naive person. He's talking about someone who's entrenched uh, in their evil. For he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. You'll become a fool if you keep appealing to a a fool, is the point. Uh, People that are working in the realm of learning theory talk about what they call an extinction burst. What they mean is that you have to let uh, arrogant, prideful, hard people... Go on in their insane way until they self-destruct. They will explode after a while. That's what they mean by an extinction burst. That's that's the prodigal son. Apparently our Lord uh, agreed with that theory. There are some people that you can't restrain. You just have to let them go and let them learn the the folly of of their own uh, ways. Uh, Jesus' disciples came to him once to complain about the tomfoolery of of the Pharisees. And they said, don't you know what they're saying about you? And and Jesus' words were, every bush that my father has not planted shall be rooted up. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. That's good advice. I heard a story once about a lion that was making his way through the jungle. And he came across a monkey and jumped on the monkey, pinned him to the path and says, who's the king of the jungle? And the monkey says, you are. He lets the monkey up and he goes on down the path comes across an elephant, grabs the elephant by the leg, tries to throw him down, and shouts up at the elephant, who's the king of the jungle? The elephant wraps his trunk around the lion, throws him about 50 yards against a tree. The elephant, or the, uh, the lion gets up, dusts himself off, and says, well, just because you don't know the answer, you don't have to be so rough about it. <laughs> so that's what you do with a fool. You just let life rough him up. And uh, believe me, though, God's mills grind Slowly, they do grind exceedingly fine. So the moral is clear. Leave a fool alone. Maybe he'll get the lesson and maybe he won't. But in any case, it's not our job to chasten fools. That's God's prerogative. Leave him alone. You may be facing someone like that in your place of work, in your neighborhood. may even be your uh, your mate. He's just hardened in his in evil, wickedness. And you've appealed to that person, but they will not listen. Finally, there comes a point where you just have to let them go. Pray for them. Let them go. And let life teach them the consequences of their folly. So that's the, uh, that's the first uh, uh, principle to learn from Abigail, uh, from her message. Leave fools alone. And secondly, again, let God 
avenge. Uh, this is something we've been, this principle we've seen over and over and over again in our studies in David, because in his flight from Saul, he was constantly being confronted with the opportunity to take matters in his own hands. And all along, God has been saying to him, let me fight your battles. Don't don't try to solve your problems yourself. You let, let me have room to work. You, you, you set out to... To set things right yourself, you just you just get in my way. Eh? Now David was aware of this fact. Even as I said, he wrote Psalms about them. But he had forgotten. His fury caused him to forget. Plato said most learning is remembering anyway, and and here this wise woman simply reminds David of what's true. This wasn't news. Uh, it was it was good news to David. He needed to hear it again, but it wasn't anything anything new. And basically what she says is, trust God. God's been faithful to keep you from shedding blood in the past, and he'll, he'll deal with, with your enemies in the future. God is the one who chastens fools. Let him go. Let God deal with you. Don't get in the way. Just clutter things up when you try to settle things uh, uh, your own way. She was well aware of the... Uh, of the scriptures, as I, as I pointed out, there are actually two Old Testament passages that she must have been aware of, one in Leviticus and one in Deuteronomy. Moses says, don't seek revenge uh, but bear, or bear a grudge against one of your people. And then again, it's mine to avenge, says God. I will repay. It's a passage that Paul uh, later quotes in Romans. And listen to this. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. And their doom rushes upon them. That's that extinction uh, burst. Their doom rushes upon them. God treads the wine press of his wrath all alone. He doesn't need our, our help. The alternative is to rob God of his honor. See, if David got to the throne, then he would be able, on his own uh, efforts, he would be able to look back and say, I did it all, all by myself. Uh, one uh, commentator said, all Abigail's actions are informed by her conviction that David has a sure house. Uh, that house is made sure by the restraint of David, by the restraint of David, and by the decisive work of the Lord. And as you know, Paul applies this same principle to all of us. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of everyone, uh, of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be ashamed by, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And uh, David listened. He listened. He was enlightened. He came to his senses. I, I can just see David standing there before Abigail as she laid out this, this beautiful counsel to David. And he's standing there, and his heart is, is, is vibrating in tune. He knows this is true. His heart's reverberating with her words. And he slides his sword back into the scabbard. 
And he says, you're right, you're right. Gentlemen, we're going home. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And see, David would have had that, that blood guilt on his life. Later, uh, we're going to uh, look at a, uh, a period in, in David's life when he fled from from Jerusalem. He was... He was uh, thrown into exile by his son, Absalom. And on the way, this scurrilous little man, Shimei, was shouting at him, accusing him of being responsible for the death of the household of Saul and, and a, a number of other deaths. And, and David could respond with good conscience. It just isn't true. See? It isn't true. David took lives in war, but there there were no lives that he took uh, in uh, just the heat of his own his own anger. Proverbs says that when a f- that a that a the ground shakes when a fool is full of food, and uh, <clears throat> what happened shortly after is that uh, this uh, big fool filled himself with food. He, he he was Nabal really got into the festival and he was eating and drinking and he, he got drunk and he passed out. And Abigail couldn't talk to him. She couldn't tell him what she had done. So she waited until the morning. And in the morning, he was all hungover and miserable and sick. And she told him what she had done. The old fool got so angry that he had a stroke and lapsed into a coma. And ten days later, he died. And the interesting thing is the way the text puts it, verse 38, I believe it is, About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Several commentators I read made the statement that rarely does God's justice come this swiftly. But it has come. The mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they do grind exceedingly small. Though with patience, he stands waiting with exactness. Grinds he all. And uh, Nabal suffered the consequences of his foolishness. And Abigail uh, saved David from blood guilt on this occasion. And uh, to turn this into a a wonderful little love story. I'm sure you know the rest of the uh, account. When David heard that Nabal was dead. He invited Abigail to join him. And she later became his wife. He makes an interesting statement. Uh, in this uh, response that he makes to Nabal's death, verses 39 through 42. He says, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He, note this, he has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own, own head. Interesting assessment. He has kept me from doing wrong. He heard God's word. And Abigail's uh, counsel. Abigail became David's uh, wife in exile. 
And uh, she passes off the scene shortly afterwards. She's not mentioned at all, except in Second Samuel, where we're told that she and David had one child. His name was Chiliab. Most commentators believe that she died in childbirth shortly after David became king at Hebron. Uh, he was king there for seven years before he became king over all Israel. And this child was born uh, to her at that point, and she probably died in childbirth. And um, David named that little boy Chiliab, we're told, Chiliab. Interestingly enough, that name is based on the term that, G- that David uses when he says of uh, Abigail, you restrained me from wrongdoing. It's the word restraint, kalah, Hebrew. And probably the A-B uh, uh, suffix is the word for father, a father who is restrained or something like that. But it strikes me that this may well be the thing that David most remembered about Abigail and the thing for which he was most uh, appreciative of their relationship, that because of her godly character, she was on him a constant restraint. Agatha Christie said that most men will be as evil as their women will permit them to be. Uh, Here is a woman who was constantly aligned with God's purposes for David, ministering to him, counseling him. She was, uh, in his life, uh, a prophet and an exceedingly wise teacher. And as I thought about this story, it came to me that there are two kinds of men in the world, those who listen to wise women and those who don't. Uh, There are wise men in the world and there are wise women in the world and there are foolish men and there are foolish women. And uh, we ought to be willing to listen to wise people wherever we uh, find them, people that are wise in in the ways of the word, not necessarily in the the ways of uh, of the world. Men who treat women with disdain and who fail to take them seriously simply because they are women have missed what's going on here in this passage. There are men like that who will just dismiss the counsel of women simply because they are women, you see. And they, unfortunately, are in the class with Nabal. Because scripture tells us that those, for those who love God, there is neither male nor female. That is, gender differences don't make any difference, whatever. David took men, took women as he found them. You know, he looked for wise women and, and he listened to them. Unlike uh, some of us who have uh, our uncertain male dignity to defend, we don't want to listen to uh, the women in our lives. The wise men in the and one of the Proverbs says, The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice, even if it comes from a wise woman. That's my addition. That's not in the proverb. But that's the point of the story of, of, Anna, of, of Abigail. David listened to, uh, listened to wisdom, and he grew wise. Unlike Nabal and uh, some other men that I know, Uh, David was no fool. And I think we need to take this uh, to heart. God has given us in this assembly some exceedingly wise women. Uh, There are some wise men here. I'm tempted to say wise guys, but I think there are some some wise men in uh, in this body. But God has given us women.
who have put their roots down into the Word and down into our Lord, and they speak wisdom. And when they speak, we need to listen. Uh, We men must not be fools. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you for those women in our midst whose good judgment keep us from bloodshed every day. Uh, who instruct us by their manner and by their words, who teach us truth, who keep us facing into our own inadequacies and failures. And uh, we would ask for the grace to listen. Thank you for this, for the example of this woman who, whose wise restraint marked David to the end of, our day, of his days. May that be true of us as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.